The calendar today says Easter Sunday, as you know. And because of that, millions of people around the world today are observing or celebrating in some special way the resurrection of Christ. If they're attending Easter services in person, in many cases it won't be just a regular service, but maybe a sunrise service. Or maybe other special services going on during what's often called Holy Week. The world calls today Easter Sunday, the day of our Lord's resurrection from the grave. But is it really? As we begin the lesson today, I want us to think about that question for just a few moments. Nowhere in the New Testament is a special yearly celebration of the resurrection mentioned or commanded. And yet there are many, you might say, good-intentioned people who celebrate this holy day, as they would call it, having no Bible authority at all for that practice. Because of Man's traditions, many people today believe that Easter has always been observed from apostolic times and is authorized in the New Testament. Even some members of the church may believe that. Maybe you believe it. But where does that idea come from? Well, there is, there is an unfortunate translation, actually it's a mistranslation, in the old King James Version of the New Testament that has maybe led some people astray. In Acts 12, verse 4, there is a Greek word in the old King James Version that is translated into English as... Easter, and you're seeing it there on the screen in that verse. Now that same Greek word is correctly translated as Passover in every other reliable version, and also in 28 other passages where it's used in the Old King James Version. So almost definitely... It was mistranslated there in Acts 12, verse 4. And you know, even if the word was correctly translated, there's no authority there for the special observance of anything. And that's why Easter as we know it today is celebrated without correct Bible authority. The text there in Acts 12 is actually referring to the seven-day Passover festival of the Jews. The word Easter actually comes from a word that was the name of the goddess of spring. And sacrifices were offered to this false god. So the observance of Easter originated as a pagan holiday festival and it was not celebrated as the resurrection of Christ until the 8th century A.D. That's 800 years after the time of Christ. But during that time, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians could not agree on a set date. 
So they finally agreed upon the first Sunday following the full moon that comes on or after the vernal equinox. You could figure that out. And that's why there's a variation in the date of Easter every year from March 22nd through April 25th. Now, I've given you a little quick history there of the word Easter so that you can hopefully see and understand that it started out as a pagan holiday festival and it later became a yearly celebration of the resurrection of Christ among many different religions around the world. As we already said, there's no place in the New Testament where a yearly celebration of the resurrection of Christ was ever practiced. Just like there's no place in the New Testament where we find a yearly remembrance of the birth of Christ on December the 25th. And yet today, millions of people around the world remember his death, burial, and resurrection only on this one day per year. <clears throat> and so they make it a special day. And here's the main point that I want to make. The Lord's Church should not celebrate Easter Sunday any more than it celebrates every other Lord's Day. Members of the Lord's Church should remember the death and burial and resurrection of Christ every first day of the week. And we do that as we partake of the Lord's Supper. As we're instructed to do in Acts 20, verse 7. You know, we are warned over and over throughout the Bible against adding to or taking away from God's Word. And there's a number of references on the screen that do that. In Matthew 15, verse 9, Jesus cautioned against teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, Let's move on now to the rest of the sermon for today. This sermon this morning is going to be the fourth in a series that I'm doing on the great and precious promises of God that should give us hope as faithful Christians. In January, we studied an introduction to this series in a sermon on the idea that God's promises should be our anchor of hope during the storms of life that will come to all of us. In February, we study the subject, God promises we can defeat the enemy. And that enemy is Satan. Last month in March, we studied the subject, God promises our prayers can have power. <clears throat> and in that sermon, we talked about some important qualifiers that give our prayers power. And we looked at some cases, several Bible cases of prayers that had the power to impact the actions of God. So the sermon subject today in this series is going to be God promises... Death is not the end. As we just said a moment ago, we have no Bible authority in the church to celebrate the day called Easter more than any other Lord's Day. We remember the resurrection of Christ every Lord's Day. And that resurrection is proof that life does not end with death. Death is not the end. And you know that is, without a doubt, one of the great and precious promises of God. 
So, let's go back. Let's go back to the afternoon that Jesus died. Standing near the cross, keeping watch with him, were some of the people who were closest to Jesus. There was Mary, his mother. There was Mary Magdalene and the Apostle John who were all in the crowd of spectators. You know, those six hours that Friday were excruciating for Jesus as he bore the physical agony of crucifixion and the spiritual weight of the sins of this world. But it was also a, a horrifying and a, a, a crushing experience for those who loved Jesus and had to watch him suffer and then die on that cross. They watched as some of the spectators shouted insults at him and mocked him. But they also heard Jesus express his forgiveness toward them. They heard the other statements that Jesus made from the cross, including his last one, in Luke 23, 46. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said that, he breathed his last. And in that moment, Jesus was gone. You know, we have different ways today of describing that moment when somebody dies. We have expressions like, they just slipped away, they departed, they left. And there's another expression that we often use in regard to someone's death. We've all said it. And heard it said countless, countless times. They passed away. But you know, in truth, when people die, they do pass, but not away. They simply pass on. And so the questions that I want us to look at and think about today in this sermon are these questions. On to where? To what place? And in what manner or form? What does the person who passed on see? What do they know? We may long to know the answers to those questions because we know that, that barring the return of Christ during our lifetimes, which could happen, we will all experience physical death. We will all experience a last breath and a final pulse and then we'll be gone from this life. But what will we be and where do we go after we die? Today we're going to use what the Bible tells us to answer those questions. As you know, the world today has many different answers to those questions. Some people believe that after we die, we'll just be nowhere, and we become nothing. They believe that death is truly the end. Some believe that those who die become ghosts or spirits. 
Others believe that after you die, you turn into something else. Maybe a hawk or an ant or a farmer in South America. That's the idea of reincarnation. Still others believe that you simply become part of the universe. Eternity just absorbs you. But you know, the Bible gives us a very different and a very promising picture. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Paul describes this promise. He says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Those who have lived faithful lives in Christ have this great promise in that verse. Death is swallowed up in victory. According to that promise, we as people of obedient faith should realize that the cemetery is less a place of loss and more a place of gain. And that doesn't mean that those who have died in Christ are not mourned and greatly missed. We do mourn for those we love because we miss them so much. Losing them is so hard. During the past several months, as we all know, we've lost some, we've lost some good and faithful members of this congregation that we all loved and we all miss. But we shouldn't grieve like the rest of mankind that has no hope. We should realize that our loss is their gain. And we should believe, as we sometimes say, and we've already said it this morning, that they have gone to a better place. As God's faithful people, we have the hope and the promise that hinges on Christ's resurrection. Christian hope depends entirely on the truth, the fact that Jesus died a physical death on the cross. And he was placed in an actual grave. But then on the third day after his death, he vacated that grave. And he arose again. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ and preached that great gospel sermon, the crux of his sermon that day was based on the facts that Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And if you read that text right there in Acts 2, you can see that. So let's go back in our minds to that Sunday morning that followed the Friday execution of Jesus. Picture the sky being dark as the sun had not yet risen. <clears throat> Picture the Roman soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb, maybe wondering about what to have for breakfast or what they would do on their next day off. I would guess that the last thing on those soldiers' minds was the man who had been nailed to that metal cross and who was buried in that tomb. That was probably old news to them. 
Because this Jesus was dead and gone. Right? Wrong. Here's the way Matthew described what happened next in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Had those words never been spoken, had the body of Jesus decayed into dust in that borrowed grave, then you and I would not be thinking about this promise today. But those events took place. They happened. And those words were spoken. And the promise was made. And as you may remember, Jesus then went on what we might call a resurrection tour. That resurrection morning, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene near the tomb. That resurrection afternoon, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That resurrection evening, Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, minus Thomas. A week later, Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and this time Thomas was there, and he was encouraged to stop doubting and believe. And if he needed to, Thomas could put his fingers where the nails had pierced Jesus' hands and where the spear had pierced his side. Later, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the shore of Galilee where he spoke and ate with them. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus at one point appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at the same time. So because of all those appearances, followers of Jesus were convinced without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And they also believe that his resurrection is the preview and the promise of our own resurrection. They believe that what God had done for Jesus, God would do for them and for us. When Jesus rose from the dead, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. Now in Paul's time, the first fruits was the first taste of the harvest. And a farmer could foresee the nature of the crop by sampling that first batch, the first fruits. And so we can foresee our own resurrection by studying the resurrection of Jesus. 
So, what actually happens at the moment we die and pass on? Here is a chart that I put together that will be helpful, I think, in answering that question today. The first part of the chart represents the Hadean realm, or Hades, which is the dwelling place of the spirits after death. It's like a holding place for the spirits of those who have died. Now, Hades is not the same thing as hell. And I want to make that real clear. A lot of people today are confused about that, even in the church. And it may be because, possibly because, the old King James Version of the Bible translates Hades as hell which again is another mistranslation in that version. And we can see that mistranslation in Acts 2.31 in the Old King James Version, which says, He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not, here it is, look at it, left in hell. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, the soul of Jesus did not go to hell. It went to Hades, as correctly shown here in the New King James Version and also in every other reliable version. And you can check that out for yourself. Everyone goes to Hades when they die. The righteous who die go to Hades. The wicked who die go to Hades. If we die as a righteous, faithful Christian, the New Testament shows that our spirit will immediately enter into the presence of God in the part of Hades called paradise. And we will immediately enjoy a conscious fellowship with God the Father in paradise and with those who have gone before us. And we believe that to be true because of verses like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, which says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And you know, that's the same promise that Jesus gave the thief on the cross when he said in Luke 23, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And notice there that Jesus promised that it would happen today. So there was no, there was no delay there was no pause, there was no purgatory as the Catholics believe. There was no soul sleeping as other people believe. The thief on the cross breathed his last, closed his eyes, and he woke up in paradise. The soul of the righteous, faithful Christian journeys to paradise while the body in the grave awaits the second coming of Christ. And you know that's the same description that we see in, in the parable of Jesus of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. When the selfish, uncaring rich man died, his soul went to the part of Hades called torments. That account in Luke 16 says, the rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades. But the soul of Lazarus was taken by the angels to paradise. 
referred to in that parable as Abraham's bosom. One of them was in torment, in agony, burning in fire, and the other one was in great comfort. Verse 26 in that chapter says that there was a great gulf fixed between them, and no one and nothing could cross back and forth. Now those two realms of Hades where all people go when they die, those are just the first stages of eternity. Not the final destinations of heaven and hell. Paradise has a narrow gate because the number entering there will be few. Torments has a wide gate for all the many who will enter there. The next part of the chart represents the final stage that will begin when Christ returns on the final day, the day of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Before we see the angels and hear their voices and their trumpets, we'll hear the voice of the Lord. And Jesus will awaken the bodies and summon the souls of the dead. And on that final day, on that final day, Hades will be emptied of all those who are there, the righteous and the wicked. Hades will give up its souls, and the earth will give up its bodies, and they will be reunited. John 5, 28 and 29 says this, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The next time you're in a cemetery, think about what that moment might look like. The same God who shook the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus was buried. The same God will shake the ground of every cemetery on earth. I'm not sure what that will look like, but I know that God's promise will come true. You know, people sometimes wonder in what form will the resurrected body be? What will it look like? Our resurrected bodies will not be like our earthly physical bodies. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 15, 50, which says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the resurrected body won't be flesh and blood, which means that there won't be any issue with people whose bodies have been cremated. So what happens to the living? What happens to the living when the Lord returns those who haven't died? 1 Corinthians 15, 52 answers that. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, now that's the living, we shall be changed. 
the living will be changed into their incorruptible bodies. So after the righteous and the wicked receive their resurrected bodies, then we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the books will be opened. The righteous will receive their reward and the wicked will be condemned. Matthew 25, 32 says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. All of humanity will be there. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Now, some of you might be thinking about, about this question. What's the point of a judgment day if people have already been in paradise or torments and they know their final destiny? That's a good question. You see, judgment day is not the day when God is going to weigh all the evidence and then he decides on a verdict. Because he's already done that. That happens when a person dies. You could say that judgment day is going to be the pronouncement day when we will all find out why we are lost or saved. And as you can see on the chart, judgment day is necessary for the living when Christ returns, those who haven't died yet and gone to either paradise or torment. There will not be a single person in heaven or hell who doesn't know why he or she is there. So that brings us then to the last part of the chart, eternity in either heaven or hell. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Apostle John described eternal life in heaven this way in the text in Revelation 21 that Drew read. Here it is. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was also there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Now doesn't that sound wonderful and amazing? And don't you look forward to being there? That's what the faithful people of God have to look forward to for all eternity, forever and ever. But you know, that's not all that will happen after the judgment. 
John also tells us in Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And pay attention, pay attention to this last statement. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 verse 8 calls it the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, how long is hell going to last for those who are sent there? Revelation 14, 11 says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Can you imagine, can you imagine anything more horrible, more terrifying than that? I want you to think hard about this. A person who dies and goes to hell has tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the next 100 years and the next 1,000 years and the next million years and he never gets any closer to the end. That's eternity. Another preacher that I know compared it to a clock that he once saw that was broken. He actually tried to buy it from the person that had it. Like the one here on the screen, the minute hand on that clock would jump forward and then jump right back over and over and over. Now that's eternity. You're there forever and ever. Now, if the thought of that doesn't make you want to get your life right with God, I don't know what will. I think I know for sure that none of us want to end up burning in the lake of fire in hell for all eternity, nor do we want anybody we know to end up there. And praise God that no one has to end up there. And yet we know that a great many people will. God sent his son to die on the cross and be raised from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins so that everyone who believes in him and obeys him and follows him can spend eternity with him in heaven and not in hell. Praise God for the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has promised us that death is not the end of life. As we already say, God has promised us as faithful, obedient Christians that death is swallowed up in victory. So let's make this promise one of our cornerstones in our foundation of faith. You know, back in the first sermon in this series, we talked about God's promises 
as being our anchor of hope. Let's allow this promise to anchor us through the storms of life and also the storms of death. Let's make sure that we view death through the lens of Christ's resurrection. The grave brings us sorrow for sure, but it need not bring us despair. In 2 Peter 3.13, Peter wrote, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's God's promise to his faithful people. Death is not the end just the beginning of something far better. And we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, a great, great many people today believe that this earthly life is as good as it gets. But we as faithful children of God should realize that this world is as bad as it gets. And that heaven is going to be so much better than the best of earth. Let's allow this hope about tomorrow to give us strength for today. Because our finest moment can be our final moment. I read about a gravestone that had this message engraved on it. Pause now, stranger, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so soon you'll be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And somebody else had put a homemade wooden sign next to the gravestone that said this, To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. We are all going to physically die unless Christ returns first. And we will all go to one destination or the other. God's promise is that death is not the end of life. John 3.16 gives us God's promise through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Philippians 1.21, Paul wrote, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And you know that truth applies if we're a faithful child of God. Whether we're facing a serious illness or job loss or serious accidents or personal failures. Let's put our faith in Christ. And walk in obedient faith as we live in God's hope and God's grace. So that when we die, we can experience the resurrection of life and be with the Lord forever. Now, if a person does not believe in Christ, then of course he or she cannot become a Christian. But on the other hand, if a person does believe in Christ, then he or she must do something about it. Because there's no defense for someone believing in Christ and his resurrection and not responding to the Lord's invitation. And the New Testament steps to do that are these. Hearing the gospel of Christ preached or taught. Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. Secondly, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 8, 24 says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Thirdly, repenting of your sins and turning away from them. Luke in Acts 3, 19 says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Number four, confessing the name of Christ. Paul in Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then number five, immersed in the waters of baptism. In Acts 2.38, the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Paul in Galatians 3.27 wrote, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then finally, number six, living faithfully after baptism. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And if you're already a Christian today, but there is sin in your life that, that you need to confess in a public way, then you ought to do that today because, you know, we have no promise of tomorrow. James 4.14 tells us, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So if you are subject to the invitation of Christ in any way this morning, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.